Welcome to the Atlas Project. It's a new world. To navigate it, we need new maps. Each episode, best-selling author Chris Katana and Scott Jones saw 50,000 feet above the immediate headlines in politics, economics, science, and society. The Atlas Project aims to reveal the big picture of where humanity is headed and the choices we all need to face. Chris, good morning, my friend. Scott, it's been a while. Yeah, man, we've been doing a lot of stuff. And well, you've been moving house. Yes, moving is the worst. It's, uh, yeah, I mean, the thing about moving is you discover everything that you possess. Everything. But, like, for instance, I'm holding in my hand my 80 gig iPad, or iPod, like an original one with the spin wheel, but it had the video screen, too. And I want to see what's on it, but I don't have a charging cord that could it could plug into it. So <laughs> I've got one. I've got one back in Canada it, in, it, yeah. in, in deep storage. Although I'm sure you could find one on Amazon for a couple of bucks. Yeah, I'm just wondering what's on there. Does it have uh, Does it have the the buttons? Remember the original? It just has a, a, the original a iPod had four buttons on the top too. Not yeah, really. this has a menu, a play, a forward, a, a, you know, a forward and backward, and the spin thing. That's um, that's a museum piece. Yeah, that's neat, huh? There we go. <laughs> yeah, I found a lot of junk I had, but uh. And uh, yeah, the, the the studio is reset up. It's I think it's actually better than it was before. Strangely, but yeah. So what's going on in the UK? What's uh, well, it's raining hard at the moment, which is kind of typical for February. Uh, it's it's interesting. I mean, so the end of January was when Brexit formally happened. So that conversation that was taking place over three years about would they or wouldn't they actually leave the EU uh, has happened. Uh, and in some ways, that was a kind of enormous relief for society here. I mean, it was almost something palpable, just that, okay, at least that question is answered, and now we can move on to the next crisis, which is really, so um, not to go into the details of it, but basically, upon leaving the EU, the UK said, okay, so immediately upon leaving, um, we are just going to keep everything the same. So nothing changes, but now we have the power to make changes. And so they're spending the most most of this year, you know, basically having a conversation with the EU about how much can we change the way we do things in the UK and still have access to some of the benefits of being inside the EU. Uh, but while they have that conversation, nothing has changed. So is this just, and that is makes this people like, feel better. Yeah, this is the interesting <laughs> thing. Like, so is this kind of just a big thing of like anxiety management? So we've said we don't like Brexit and now we voted against it. And yet we're not really out of it. And I mean, is this just like status quo? Uh, I suppose, I suppose I mean, it's also it, just a good, a, it's a good example of how I mean, we all inhabit the same world, but we don't. And and our reality really is shaped by what we pay attention to. And so, you know, the average person who, you know, can't see directly what the consequences of leaving, you know, some broad political community will be for them. The experience is, oh, thank God that is over. But if you are, you know, say uh, a company that is importing stuff from the EU and worried that, you know, if we set up new uh, tariffs and import rules and stuff, then I'm going to have to figure out new sources of the materials that I've been buying. Uh, now is actually when the uncertainty begins for you, because that's kind of uh, the problem. So so I think for broader society, yeah, it's about kind of anxiety release. Okay, we know, we kind of know what the 
solution or what the outcome of that conversation is. Um, and yet for so many people now is the beginning of the anxiety because they are, you know, paying attention to the new unknown, which is, you know, for the moment, nothing has changed because uh, the UK hasn't yet exercised the new sovereignty that it has regained. Um, but they're obviously going to change some things. Otherwise, why would we bother leaving? Um, and how are those changes going to affect me, whether I'm, you know, someone who works here, someone who's running a business, someone who whatever. How will it affect you so as someone who works there and kind of runs a business? Me personally? I mean, you, you, do, you do sort of, I mean, your business is you, right? I mean, you kind of, you're a thinker of, you know, so speaker, is, communicator. As, as a Canadian, it doesn't really change things either way, right? I mean, if I were a, if I were a citizen of the EU, um, you know, let's say I were French working in, in the UK, suddenly there's all this uncertainty about what is what is my long-term status? And I used to have rights here as an EU citizen, um, but now I don't. Now I have, I suppose, privileges. I guess I have a work visa. Um, is that a permanent thing? Do I need to renew it? Can it be taken away? Um, so, yeah, for people who live in the UK, uh, I guess now if you're European and you live in the UK, now the questions are kind of the same sort of questions that, um, you know, a foreigner living in the U.S. asks themselves, you know, what is how long am I allowed to stay here and, and how might that change and when might it change? And, and it's kind of the same thing the other way. If you're British and you're living in the EU now, you, you, you now have these same uncertainties about your future. And couldn't it be like I heard that like Northern Ireland and Ireland now where it would just, you know, going back and forth was just like going back and forth between New Jersey and Pennsylvania and the United States. And now that could change. Right. Because it, it, you'll have to have like a it, it would be like more like going to Canada from Michigan. Which yeah, is that's right. That's So this is one of the big, you know, again, nothing has changed yet, but the UK now has the power to, you know, go in a different direction from the EU in terms of things like trade policy or, you know, if we want to, I don't know, uh, make it harder to import dairy into the UK because we want to protect domestic dairy industry or things like that. So, um, you know, in Ireland, a lot, a lot has been made about how the... Uh, the the completely kind of borderless flow of people and and products across the Northern Irish and Irish borders is is one of the things that just helps to stitch that island of people together. You know, there's there was uh, you know over the last twenty years, and Bill Clinton was a part of this, right? Like building the peace in Northern Ireland. And yeah, it's true that you know countries that trade together tend not to go to war together. There's a good reason to be neighborly, and so there is a lot of anxiety. Again, talk about anxiety. Um, on that island, that are we going to be reintroducing barriers? I mean, if if we're going to have differences in how goods are handled in Ireland and Northern Ireland, then you're going to need to have some kind of physical barrier to sort of control the flow of goods that need to be handled differently. So you've got concerns like that. I mean, here, I mean, turning this into a UK discussion, but you know, the other fascinating thing is the UK is a federal state. You know, it. We don't really think about it that way, but just like the United States is made of many states, uh, the United Kingdom is made of Northern Ireland, you know, Wales, England, and then, of course, you've got Scotland. And one of the interesting things about Scotland that's quite distinctive is that uh, Scotland has, uh, throughout this whole Brexit debate, been very strongly pro-EU. For the Scottish, there is a lot of um, identity tied up in being European. And so the fact that the UK has now formally left the EU uh, makes it 
much more likely that in the next couple of years, uh, Scotland is going to hold another referendum on do we want to be part of the UK anymore? Because maybe if we leave the UK, if we separate from this United Kingdom, then as an independent Scotland, we could talk to the EU about becoming uh, a member of the EU ourselves, which is something that a lot of Scottish voters uh, feel really strongly about. So there's a bit of doom and gloom. You talk about uncertainty. So people who think about these things, they wonder, like, is Northern Ireland going to go its own way in the next few years? Is Scotland going to go its own way in the next few years? A lot a lot is still, I guess, story to be told about uh, about where this conversation goes. So are, like, are you, like, I take it you're like an anti-Brexit guy. I would guess, right? I mean, you're kind of a, you're, you're an internationalist type. I mean, I think you're, you're, you're more of a guy that seemingly would, would, would be suspicious of the Brexit move, right? Yeah, I think, so, you know, I've been thinking a lot about, I suppose one thing that I am is anti-reductionist, right? And so uh, I guess in part because I have... I will then assume the pro-reductionist position. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, like, like I'm curious to, I think definitely my bias is you know, towards integration. And I think that there's a lot about the European project, right? We are obviously all these different nations. We are these different cultures. But is there some kind of deeper thing that we share that means that we should work on it together as a kind of, you know, broader political community? I mean, you know, for, for people who like to think about big ideas, that's an exciting big idea, right? It's kind of like, yeah, is there is there something universal to humanity and are we ever going to work it out? I mean, if Europe can work it out, then... Um, it's not crazy to imagine, you know, in 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 the relationships between states, you know, between North America and Africa and Europe and South America and Asia, that we can get better as a species at kind of recognizing what we share in one another. Um, and on the flip side, if Europe can't figure it out, then what hope is there? <laughs> Brother. So, so yeah, in the big picture, I, I think that it's an important project to be trying to work out um, even though we're different, what are the ways that we can move together? Um, so that's kind of my fundamental, I suppose, pro-Europe bias, if I think about the whole Brexit question. But I'm also, I'm also open to, you know, and I really, I, I feel like, although it's been really badly articulated and it hasn't been directed in any sort of positive way, there is something real and important in, in some of the intuitions that underlie things like uh, Brexit or underlie things like um, the Trump presidency. And, 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 you know, I think some of those things are, um, you know, deep felt senses. I guess it's sort of, you know, some of those things are, are kind of the postmodern ills, right? Senses of alienation, of, of fragmentation, of a kind of incoherence to the world that creates a, a longing for um, connection and and coherence right and i and i think i i think that that that's kind of one of the deep intuitions and urges that um you know populist political movements right now have been have been leveraging to say here let me make sense of it for you let me simplify the chaos let me give some validity to these feelings of unease you have let me identify a cause for them and then empower me to make things right. Yeah, I think Andrew Yang, who who's running for was running for president, he just dropped out of the race. Um, but he was one of the more compelling candidates, I thought, because he is a guy who's fr who's an entrepreneur and from the tech world and things. And he understand. I mean, his response, 
you know, his his sense of why Trump got elected. Before I pick, we have a connection with Andrew Yang. I'll tell you. I'll tell you about it in a moment. I love it. I love it. Yeah, one degree of separation. He um he is somebody that I think was diagnosing like, hey, look, there are all these jobs that are going away and they're not coming back, right? And and this is part of the populist backlash. Like, you know, he, I mean, his big thing is like, what? Wait till we get driverless tractor trailers and the kind of like populist back because that's still one of the jobs in America where you can actually support a family right like driving a truck is is you can make good money and you know you don't need to uh go to college to do it you don't need to master um you know like some you know you don't need to do no coding or anything and you actually it's a it's a, still a really good job when these things are keep going away and and there's not a kind of uh you know there's not no, none of the other democrats are, are have talked as much as he did about some of these economic realities that aren't changing right like i mean this is the populism on the right and the left, both sort of, whether it's Trump or Sanders, we're going to manufacture again, or we're going to, the American workers going to like, you know, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll get the workers rights back and we're all going to get like, I mean, it, it's I don't even have a super pack. I don't even have a backpack. I just carry my things under my arm like a college professor. But, uh, <laughs> you know, like these, yeah, I think that populist thing is like Yang was compelling about Yang is he's actually talking about, these kind of realities. And the thing that scares me, and we've probably talked about this before, but the thing that like scares me most is like Hillary Clinton won one sixth of the counties in the United States, right? In the 2016 election, Trump won five, six, 80% of the counties, right? The one sixth of the counties she won has like 70% of the GDP. And so those other 80% of the counties in the country have 30% of the GDP. So like all of the economic opportunities and development or have, and this is the other thing Yang's talking about, about like trying to like, you know, in, in other parts of the country, develop economic zones that are thriving. So people don't just have to, if you get an advanced education, what do you do? You got to go to the coasts. So, I mean, that, that's, and I, I think that's probably, I don't know if it's like this in England, but my guess is there's like a certain kind of metro, you know, population that really benefits from the global economy disproportionately, probably more than certain other parts of the, and, and you get this kind of, you know, I don't know, I don't know how you, how you what you do about that because that i mean because i think that's one of the challenging things that like this is what you write about in you know the age of discovery like that you know that you know the renaissance was the best time to be alive at the time and yet there's still the the aggregate you know is different than the particular and there's still lots of people left behind and struggling and i think that that's you know it's the the global economy sounds great if you're if you're in one sixth of those can in the in the counties that in the united states where it's thriving i feel like i feel like there's Kind of yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna grope with this aloud, so it's not gonna maybe come out. Please grope me. Yeah. Okay. Thanks. I, I mean, you said I could. So, but so I mean, obviously, you know, these are kind of the classic splits, right? The left versus right, and the left is saying, you know, look at the inequality and and the distribution of winners and losers, and 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 I think that whole analysis you gave is right. I think we well, you know kind of back to your question of you know, so am I kind of pro anti Brexit and 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 back to my response around what fascinates me is i think that that the that it's surfacing some deeper questions that we've kind of been ignoring and and we need to take this opportunity now that they're kind of coming to the surface to really grasp them and pick them up and stare at them and and i don't really think that you know for example the democratic candidates in um in the 2020 debates have really grasped this yet, which is, uh, I mean, a lot of the analysis, including Andrew Yang, is kind of, you know, it's it's looking at the economic 
and what's wrong with the economics. And I feel like there is a kind of a, a deeper blind spot in you know the whole spectrum of what what they are debating about uh, in in the inability to really see past the economics to some deeper things at stake. And I, I told you I'm going to be groping, right? But so I like I think, that. I'm thinking in my mind at the moment of I'm actually thinking about Marx and and scientific materialism and this kind of you know almost like the bad part of enlightenment thinking which was that sort of you know that we can we can optimize the world that that you know with 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 perfect data and the best science we can we can we can optimize the world as if the world is this kind of machine and and you know and and when we're talking about jobs and jobs being lost to automation and stuff like that we're we're not thinking about sort of the full human dimensions of work we're just thinking about the task and can the task be done by a machine or by a human and as i think about you know i think back to brexit for example for me it was so clear you roll back way to 2016 when when this country is actually having the debate about should we be in europe or should we be outside of europe everyone who is arguing to stay in was 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 making utilitarian arguments was making economic arguments about how ultimately we'll be better off or worse off in this kind of material understanding of reality by being in europe when so much of of what people who voted for Brexit were feeling was was the realities of something else. You know, it was it was things like identity and and you know maybe you know whether whether false or real. You know, a, a, an imagined community, a, a a nostalgia for empire, right? A sense of maybe we're not stronger together. Maybe we are stronger standing on our own, right? And these and 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 just because you. You just because it flies in the face of economic data doesn't mean that there's not something real there. That that mythology is 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 really powerful, powerful stuff. Yeah, I mean, this is where Donald Trump is a, a really effective candidate because he gives you an identity. Like you, you're one of his guys, and you're at the rally and the lock her up. Lock, you know, and it's it's you know it's it's kind of like you know, a, a sporting event. And yet the, 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 you're on the team and you, everyone's got a, a, a MAGA jersey and, and it does create a sort of connection and, and a sense of, you know, of, of national identity and, and pride. And, and yeah, I mean, right. I think that okay, that, so, that is, so and even if it's, even if it's very thin, I mean, I think that like, there might not be much to it, but like, yeah. you know, and he, what does right. he do? He, he doesn't, he goes to parts of the country. He goes to the non-urban centers and rents out, gets these big venues and fills them up. And it's like pro wrestling. Right. I guess. So actually so that help, maybe, maybe the question is this, you know, next time you watch, uh, you know, one of the democratic debates, I, I think, you know, ask the question, what is real for these people, right? Like given the arguments they're making, what are they presupposing is real and what is just unreal and doesn't matter? You know, like job statistics are real. Um, apparently, uh, you know, like income statistics are real. Um, you know, is, is the spiritual real is, um, you know, national identity real? I don't know, but I think that there's a lot that is real for voters that is not being represented in the discourse. Yeah, I, and I, think, think, I think fundamentally yeah. that's for me that's the lesson of Brexit. So yeah, okay. So now I am coming full. So now I, I, I what Trump what does, say, right? what Trump does is he makes something real or connects with with in his base a sense of values and identity that will convince them to vote against their economic interests. You know, so like you know he'll give these tax 
cuts that disproportionately benefit the people in Hillary Clinton counties and stuff. And yet there there's a loyalty because there is something he's tapping into and they and they will again vote against their interest for the connection and identity and and the idea that you know you're part of a movement here. And so you know it's interesting that you know we talk about politics but it really is I think a philosophical contest about what is real and what isn't. I think that there is and so this is kind of as I say this is the marxist this is the scientific materialism this is the kind of utilitarian outlook on the world. There is a kind of um a skepticism that these these aspects of you know of feeling of intuition um that people are responding to are are unreal and so we discount them um and 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 i and i think it's just maybe i think we need to go the other way not to validate it but to but to say we we have we are too reductionist in our thinking of 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 what what exists um you know, not not just in the minds of voters, but but kind of what exists as social realities. Yeah, there, and, there, there and, was a piece. There was a piece that Jonah Goldberg wrote in Commentary Magazine. He's a center right kind of American commentator and a bright, very bright guy. He wrote sort of a book called "The Suicide of the West" and talking about sort of how like the, this sort of you know what he thinks is liberal Enlightenment democracy and free markets and stuff is is very unique accomplishment and and it might implode. But he wrote about against socialism, and he wasn't talking about socialism, socialist economic policy. He was talking about basically national populist, like if people don't have identity, let's find something in a social, in, in, in like a socialism, like like you know, if we just get together as a tribe or a group or an identity, we'll feel better. And he was very skeptical of this, like he's thinking, no, like you know, this is the kind of thing where people can't kind of handle the you know the independence of the of the liberal democratic project and it, it, it's kind of you know pejorative i mean it does it, it's sad his argument again this is you can hear somebody make this from the left or the right this kind of discounting this desire for uh something a kind of traditional connection that we that that you lose in pre you know from the transition to pre to modern to modernity and late modernity and and i think it all i think for me it's just so i think what we're doing is we're developing our agenda for the next year or so because that's how big these questions are yeah but for me for me it just identifies i mean we are so unpracticed and uncomfortable uh exploring these questions that we just run from them i think the 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 immediate so you know a lot of people you know listening to this or I can imagine coming on this would be like, you know, hammering me around. Oh, my God. Like what you're saying, Chris, is that truth is relative and we can all have our own truth and rationalize whatever we want. And that's that I think is the kind of like almost, I don't know, like adolescent mistake we're making. We think that unless it is a totally discrete, objective thing that we can measure in the world and unless we are committed to that and only that then it's a slippery slope to just you can rationalize everything and what we seem completely unable to explore is that there is there is the possibility of truth that is not objective and yet exists in a kind of you know a, a shared context that that you can't just make anything true and yet it's possible that some things are true for me and not for you like that there is a there is a, a i don't know if it's a middle ground but there is something richer than you know just that kind of objective truth and that this whole dichotomy between objective and subjective is is wrong that there's something working in the middle there and 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 I can't even talk because it's just it's so 
unfamiliar a concept. But what I'm saying is that when you look at you know what happened with Brexit here, and what we, when you look at what happened in the 2016 presidential election, is I think that I think that it is these these aspects of what's real that we haven't been paying attention to, giving us an opportunity to grab onto them and start to to work with them. Maybe if I can move it to a bit more familiar territory, you know, for you, I, it's like spirituality, right? Now, the, does God exist, right? Is, 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 I, is, 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 is the, yeah, is, oh, I mean, you're, 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 you're a minister, but like, is the Christian, is the Christian story true? Is it real? I don't know. But as, as a mythology, I think that it, it is, um, you know, not just fascinating, but really important. You know, some of the aspects of it that, that here is the divine, uh, made human, right? And like the idea of of participating in and sharing our suffering. Like there there are some aspects of that myth that provide a a, a pretty unusual opportunity to sort of connect um, our our lived experience of a world out there and also the world inside ourselves. And and we need we need myths to be able to just navigate that terrain together. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And this is interesting. My friend and colleague, Bill Bohr, I do this other podcast with New Persuasive Words. We just did a podcast called The New American Paganism. And several social conservatives, intellectuals, religious intellectuals have sort of legitimized Trump support by saying that, you know, we, we've got to sort of, even though he's crass and, and boorish and, 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 you know, doesn't seem to exhibit traditional Christian virtues, he's staving off this pagan secular society, the godlessness and with, you know, judges and other things. And, you know, they, a lot of them quote T.S. Eliot, this, this idea, this, his essay, the idea of a Christian society. But this one scholar said, actually, they haven't seemed to have read the Eliot piece because Eliot <laughs> wrote this piece in the, in the, the 40, 30, 1938 when he was, he, he wrote this piece called the idea of a Christian society. And in it, he warned against, um, this he says is it is enthusi- it is not enthusiasm but dogma that differentiates a Christian from a pagan society, and he says these enthusiastic sort of populist religious nationalist sort of stuff engender nothing better than a disguised and peculiar peculiarly sanctimonious nationalism accelerating our progress toward the paganism we abhor, and then when he defines what he thinks of the paganism that is developing, he worries that if if we get this sort of Godless society, he says, the paganism that future Christians will need to identify and resist, he warns, will appear as unrestrained capitalist greed, as authoritarianism seeking to weaken democratic norms, as callous environmental degradation, as a superficial Christian moralism seeking to fuse church and state, and as a petty, sanctimonious nationalism. And and he even thinks, he says, you know, it, it will have this like puritanical morality that doesn't allow he wants a uh, he wants a Christian British society that allows pluralism, individual freedom, and he says, and he thinks that this paganism, which might even dress itself up in Christian rhetoric, will 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 seek to to erode fr- individual freedom and dignity. It's a really interesting piece because Elliot, he, he yeah, people think of him as this kind of conservative figure, and in many ways he is, but it's sometimes you read him, it's like he's so far right, he's left. So, you know, just, so, so, <laughs> so that, like, yeah, so some of, he's, he's some thinking, of that became he's, some of them that be, that became very clear for me. You know, thinking about you know is is Trump good for religion in America? Um, and I guess my argument would be no, because uh, you know it's this utilitarian thing extending into the spiritual realm. I think I think what 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 Trump is 
is is doing you know when people talk about norms and institutions being broken down and stuff like that what he's really doing is saying it's all is power yep all is the contest for power and and nothing other than the pursuit of of power in a contest of me versus you is real and so what is actually shocking to people is how he is turning things that it was imagined were somehow about a whole was somehow just about a an, an existence that wasn't that dichotomy and he's reducing it to that so religion is just a tool in my quest for power uh, the the justice system right the constitution these are all tools that work for me and so i, I mean that i think is the is the is the, the 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 fear how i would articulate the fear of what's being lost is the reduction of things that that could possibly be about some broader purpose a shared social purpose being reduced to that same kind of materialistic thing that we were talking about before i you know just a personal level i think about it in terms of meditation right i mean so so meditation which is supposed to be like kind of the 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 original sort of where did meditation come from is out of tra- a tradition of spirituality right how do we how do we um connect with the intuition that we are part of something larger than ourselves how do we how do we articulate and spend time in an awareness of this strange truth about being that that i am and yet I'm I'm aware that there is so much outside of me, and yet I'm trapped in my awareness of me. You know, meditation is meant to be kind of a spiritual avenue to that. And instead it has become, you know, meditate for 15 minutes a day and it will make you a more effective stockbroker, <laughs> right? So it is similarly the kind of the reduction of something that is meant to be a gateway to something larger into the same sort of just simplified and kind of dead materialism. You know, another example, by the way, now that I'm on this rant, um, you know, the body, you know, our bodies are like, it is the embodiment of life. This is the, the vessel through which I, you know, encounter what life is. And, and we have really, you know, tried to shut that down as well. And, and instead, the body is something that we are hostile to. You know, we have uh, my body is I'm not thin enough. I'm not fit enough. It is it is a kind of machine that we try to optimize and put into the same service of these utilitarian objectives, right? So the body, you know, spirituality, yeah, everything yeah, is I, I just had this. part of the same pursuit. And, 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 and then, you know, religion and justice and everything is just collapsing down into utilitarian winning versus losing. And then we wonder, why do people feel atomized, fragmented, there's incoherence because we have torn down everything that is meant to give some kind of broader coherence to all this shit. Sorry, I don't know where that. Yeah, I had this it. woman. No, I, I, I'm telling you, I had this interview yesterday on this Give and Take podcast with a woman, uh, Catherine Rowland, and she wrote a book called The Pleasure Gap, which is all about how and women. It's all this deeply researched book about like how basically women are having much less sexual satisfaction than men, even though we have much more. St- you know, we talk more about sex. There's seemingly more, more sexualized culture, and all these things that she says. You know, all these things, whether it's the female Viagra or the or the you know like sex coaching and all this. So she says, look, real eroticism comes from self acceptance, feeling at home in your own skin, and all these things 
or, or like anxiety producing guilt. I got to have better sex, better this, better that. And I think the same thing, you know, my friend David Zoll wrote a book called Seculosity, where he basically says, look, we may think we're a more secular culture, but we're just as religious. And now the religion is parenting or being a foodie or eroticism or the gym. And he said, this is all of the guilt and shame of the dark sides of the worst forms of religion without the transcendence or the mercy. <laughs> and yeah. it is, it's a very, I mean, I think, it's exhausting. I mean, like it, 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 we, it, late modern life is just, yeah, as you say, it's atomizing, can be fragmenting and exhausting. So, yeah. So here's my summary. Full circle again. You know, so, you know, what side of Brexit am I on or what? I think where I'm at is so much more is real than we know how to talk about. For me, that's the big lesson of Brexit. Yep. That's the big lesson of the 2016 election. I mean, like it big in the sense of forget all of the practical implications. The the kind of cultural takeaway, I think, should be that so much more is real than we know how to talk about. And and then kind of then look at our at our cultural performances, you know, like these political campaigns. I think what was refreshing about, you know, someone like Andrew Yang on the stage, people thought, oh, he just doesn't talk like a politician. Why? Because in some to some degree, in some way, he's just talking about things that the people who are practiced in that ritual of politics and here here's what's real in the political realm he was he was bringing up things that they don't know how to talk about and and rightly or wrongly and you know probably my view would be wrongly that that was what trump's magic was too is he was talking about things that that people just didn't know how to talk about and 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 i think that you know the 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 tragedy is that rather than you know having having the genius and i think it is genius to recognize what we need to talk about but aren't talking about it's very hard to do like it's like what is the blind spot very hard question to answer but having the genius to do it and then you can go in one of two ways you can you can leverage the sense of alienation and fragmentation and incoherence to lift yourself up i am the strong leader follow me or you can help people to you know to connect to now i've shown you that now now let's come together and let's all talk about this stuff to lift everyone else up. And that's, I guess that's what I'm waiting for, you know, in, in this country and kind of the aftermath of Brexit in, in, in the Democratic primaries. I'm waiting for somebody to get that, to see what we're not talking about. And by really touching it, lifting people up. Now, I think that, you know, Bernie Sanders is sort of the most populist person on that stage is maybe closer to it in terms of satisfying some kind of emotional hunger for coherence for for a, a context that makes sense but but i do think he's he's still kind of stuck in this very materialistic world right right it, basically if we just get more if we just have a flatter society everything will be you know these existential problems will be yeah, it, it, yeah. it's it's it is reductionistic and and sort of it, 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 you know, it's a panacea. We just get. To, I mean, if we just distribute the wealth and the income of the billionaires, and, and if that's going to like solve the existential ills of late modernity, hmm. like immigration, for example, immigration, and, and and where I would tell people to start looking for the stuff that we don't know how to talk about would be immigration, uh, in the sense that there are a lot of deeply felt intuitions that it is a good thing. There is something about the the reaching past surface and touching something common in all of us that is more significant than uh, surface differences. And yet it seems that really the only way that sort of pro-immigration voices have to talk about it is the material utilitarian arguments, the, the job creation, the, the innovation, the you know, like 
and and I think you know part of the challenge is when when we have stripped so much mythology out of life, there just isn't there aren't as many big shared hooks, not just of idea, but of of of, of feeling of purpose to connect to. Everybody can relate that. The, I guess the economy is a good thing, and we want economic progress, so we keep we keep hooking everything onto that. You know, which is in a way stupid because if you know there is so much economic data that says one thing that is pretty clear is there's virtually no correlation between income growth and happiness i mean japan was a happier society back in the 1960s when you know gdp per capita was like smaller than brazil than it is today and it's kind of just a general truth like you know what what is the strongest correlation with with like citizen happiness it is the it is the depth and breadth of our social connections it, it's interesting because you, you nobody know, talks about this shit yeah <laughs> Weber not, talked about it's not yeah but it's not it's not the appropriate subject of politics yeah i mean Weber talked about the iron cage right that traps individuals and systems which are based on you know only teleological efficiency and rational calculation and control and he described this like the bureaucratization of social order as the was as the uh, the polar night of icy darkness. <laughs> and I do think like, I mean, for all the great things of, of, you know, enlightenment rationality and technology and these things, this is the hard thing. It's a big trade-off, right? And how do you, how do you deal with, with life in the iron cage? <laughs> and, and you're right. I think that like, it seems like our politics are con and our rhetoric is constrained to the iron cage and people, you know, uh, want to be more, than atomistic reduction yeah. reductions so, you know so i think the point is and this is the last that i'll say on this and i think i think we found our topic for the year but the industrial revolution was the triumph of you know efficiency of mechanistic metaphor of you know organization of of the system determining the life of the individual and and I think you know a lot of what's going on in this moment culturally is you know the we're 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 there, there's certainly some kind of evolution past it and it's happening in places but it is it is a fitful process of of birthing kind of the next stage and set of values and 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 culture and and there's just so much evidence of how deeply the the biases of the kind of industrial metaphor to life um have shaped how we look at the world how we talk about the world i mean there's just it is it is remarkable how far from organic ways of thought and organization and community we we are and 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 you know and so the question is going to be and the real genius is going to be those who can help us to to kind of continue to make that journey to continue to identify um the blind spots in in the reality that we recognize and work with and 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 the genius of people who are going to be able to make it possible for us to you know to integrate uh, a much a much fuller sense of what's true of what's real of what's meaningful of what's significant um in a world where uh you know there is such a strong economic lens on reality is if if we're not counting it if we're not measuring it it doesn't exist uh, the whole is the sum of the parts and there is nothing there's nothing more than the sum of the parts right it's 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 mary shelley's frankenstein oh my god i have to i have to read frankenstein i've never read it but now i realize that's the metaphor right it's like if i if i build a being out of parts 
is it the same as the whole? And in Mary Shelley's face, it's like, no, it, the, making a whole that is just the sum of the parts is an abomination. The whole, the live being is something that transcends that. And, and that gap between Frankenstein and the human being, that's, that's the space that we need to figure out. It's the reuniting of the true, the good, and the beautiful, man. Dude, did Augustine say that? No, no, it's, but that's, but that is that, that's. I mean, I think that is like there's this there is this connection, right? And in, in you know, Plat- the Platonic tradition, the Christ- Judeo Christian tradition, this idea that the true, the good, and the beautiful are inseparable. And now we've sort of made we have a reductionistic view of the truth, and the good and the beautiful are just sort of you know, uh, you know, those are you know yeah. whatever you, whatever you think they are. They're not they're not the things of public discourse. You know, so it's. It leaves for um, starving souls. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that's a great way. Like, so to sum it up, the true, the good, and the beautiful. I think that for the most part, we now live in a society where those are just like, I don't know, words or philosophers or something like that. But they're not, they're not significant words. That, that's rhetoric. Yeah. And what's rhetoric? It's just, pff, it's air. And so the journey that we have to get on is one to where, no, those are culturally significant invocations of what this is all about. So instead of MAGA, we could be like, uh, you know, connecting the good and the beautiful again. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, well, we'll polish that. We'll polish that. Exactly. All right. I got to run. Thanks, my friend. Great conversation. Yeah. Good to see you. Thanks for listening to The Atlas Project. We'd love to hear your feedback. Drop us a line or send us a message on Facebook. If you really like what we're doing, please rate us on iTunes and write a review. It helps so much as we're just getting off the ground. Thanks for listening and facing the new world with us.